Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Jessica Gordon Roth. She's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota, the Twin Cities. Her area of specialization is in the history of early modern philosophy with a focus on Locke and feminist history of philosophy. Jessica is also one of the contributing authors prominently featured in Helen de Cruz's new book, Philosophy Illustrated, 42 Thought Experiments to Broaden Your Mind. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Absolutely. And I mean, just before we get into it, it's really cool to find out that Jessica is actually a, uh, I guess we could kind of call it an alma mater of sorts. She's from the CUNY system. So for us, it's really cool since obviously we're located in Brooklyn. So I yeah. mean, that was like a, a cool little tidbit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it, it was great living in New York. I do miss it. Uh but I do have a backyard, so there's that. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah we, yeah, we don't get those back here, right? At least some yeah. of us get rooftops, though, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so to begin, right, we're going to talk about, obviously, Helen de Cruz's book, Philosophy Illustrated. So, uh, Jessica, can you tell us a little bit about John Locke and your thought experiment in the book, The Prince and the Cobbler? Sure, yeah. So it was really exciting. Um, I mean, I first saw Helen's drawings on Facebook, and, you know, she would share them periodically, and then... People started telling her, you know, maybe you should do something with these. And I'm so happy that this book came out. In fact, my two kids, one who's five and a half and one who's two and a half, actually love looking at the book. And it's a way for us to talk some philosophy, um, which is awesome. Um, but also, I think there's so much in it for right those who are well-versed in philosophy. So, yeah, so she when she asked me to do the, um, you know, my kind of contribution to match her rendering of the experiment. I was super happy to do it. Um, I don't know, it's just what I love about it is that it's actually not what you would expect if you're steeped in the Western tradition when you think about the thought experiment. So I'll say a little bit about the thought experiment and then it's just pretty striking that, um, so this is her right version of it. Mm -hmm. um, for people who've been reading Locke for however long, right, probably don't think of an image that looks like that. So I love it. I think my mm -hmm. students, though, I'm actually teaching this when I get back from spring break. Um, that's the part of modern that we're in right now. Uh, they're going to miss my stick drawings with the soul that I show transferring over. But so oh, that's basically, cool. <laughs> yeah. So basically, um, you know, Locke was a really important figure in the history of philosophy when it comes to personal identity stuff. He's one of the first people to really um, get us to think about the persistence conditions of persons as such, right? So people have obviously been wondering about identity and what makes anything the same thing over time for thousands of years. But Locke is the one who really puts, um, you know, asks us to think about our intuitions when it comes to persons in particular on this front. Um, and so the Prince and the Cobbler thought experiment is one of his most famous, but it comes in a really like a series of thought experiments that are sort of clustered together in this one chapter um, in his essay concerning human understanding. And basically in the thought experiment, right, um, Locke asks us to imagine the soul of a prince traveling from a prince's body into a cobbler's body. And right, we're supposed to imagine that the human being that's right in that's the cobbler that we're calling the cobbler wakes up thinking, where are my royal attendants? Why are people asking me for shoes? Right. Um, so the key though in the thought experiment is that when the uh, soul travels from the prince's body to the cobbler's body, it brings the Prince's consciousness with it. So all of his past memories, his plans, his thoughts, right? His proclivities 
are carried with him. And we're supposed to think the person we're calling the prince now persists in the body of the cobbler. So there's a few important things we're supposed to get out of this. One, um, right, that you can change bodies and still be the same person. So uh, I like to tell my students, this is like, you know, an early kind of anticipation of like a Freaky Friday film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other bit of it, the more striking thing is what we see is that the concepts at the very least person and human being come apart, right? Mm-hmm. So ordinarily when, you know, if we were to meet on a podcast, you know, in a few years, I would think, oh, I'm seeing the same human being. I'm seeing the same human beings. I'm seeing the same persons. What I think Locke wants to sort of pull apart for us is that we use these terms interchangeably, man or human being and person when we're speaking colloquially, but that actually that doesn't that, that can fail to track reality, right? That mm-hmm. persons and human beings can kind of come apart as it were. Um, so what's, what's also really interesting about it uh, is that um, in this thought experiment, right? He's actually like leaning on Cartesian intuitions or uh, those who like Descartes think that, well, wherever you have the soul is where you have the same person. And so, as I say in the entry, right, if you just saw this thought experiment on its own, you might think, oh, Locke's a soul guy. He thinks that persons and souls, you know, go together all the time, but that's not his view either, right? So really the key in that uh, thought experiment is that the consciousness is doing all the work and that's what's doing the work for Locke every single time. Um, What makes you a person is being a thinking intelligent being that has reason and reflection, right? And you can think about yourself as the same thing in different times and places. And the way you do that is via consciousness. So it's in consciousness staying the same that any person stays the same over time. So, but in that thought experiment, right? He's appealing to people who are gonna be on sort of like Descartes side, right? And then later he'll sort of say, well, okay, if you think these things can come apart, human beings and persons, what about souls and persons, right? And he has other thought experiments where he shows that having the same soul is not enough to be the same person. And you could have the same soul, right? And, um, or, or be the same person and fail to have the same soul. So um, yeah, it, at first it kind of leaves students with the idea that like he, he's got this view that we sort of swap bodies and come in and out all the time. And, and that's not really his view, but what I think he's trying to do is show the limits of our concepts, right? And then try to say something about the ontology or the metaphysics kind of behind that. Yeah, what's so interesting about that is like kind of as I was reading it, I was wondering what is the distinction between the soul and consciousness, right? Because if you go into a sort of more religious thought, there's that famous notion from C.S. Lewis that you don't have a soul, you are the soul, right? So essentially the soul and consciousness are one or the same. So how would Locke distinguish between the two? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really good question, right? So what's a bit hard, right, is like most of what Locke is doing in this chapter, I take it, is, is sort of like making a negative claim. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's this thing, right? Mm. So it's not having the same body, it's not having the same soul, it's not even being the same human being, uh, it's the consciousness stuff. And then you're like, well, what's consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what's a soul for Locke? So those two questions end up being really complicated. So one way of thinking about consciousness is, right, it's sort of like the power um, to think self-reflectively. So perception's involved, um, but it's also not the same as memory. Mm-hmm. So memory can be the kind of indicator to you that you have the same consciousness as the person who committed the act, right? Um, but memory is not what makes you the same person because you could also just fail to have a memory and still be the one who did the thing. Right. Um, so there's a way in which Locke really um, often, I think, gets cashed out as a memory theorist. And that's just 
plainly not his view. He talks about our failures of memory um, like more than once, right? He talks about it on a kind of on the regular. Um, and then in terms of the soul, like the other interesting thing about Locke on the soul is that, you know, we hear the term soul and we think probably immaterial thinking thing. Um, and when Locke's using the term soul, sometimes he's using it to sort of attack Descartes and he's using it in that way. Um, other times he just means like, kind of like the thing in us that thinks. And for him, um, like, like an organ kind of, right? Um, and for him, that doesn't mean that uh, we're talking about an immaterial thing in the sort of the substantial sense. So Locke is agnostic when it comes to substance dualism. He thinks, there's so much that we can't know as these finite beings. And on that list is whether the stuff that thinks in us in finite beings is material or immaterial. <laughs> so unlike Descartes who thinks, right, the concept thought and the concept matter, right, are contradictory. You can't have a thing that's thinking and also is extended and contains parts. Um, yeah. Part of that, right, part of the issue with that is that you know, if this is a thing that can be broken down, then do you have a bunch of little thinkers there, right? Um, that's not mm -hmm. how we feel ourselves in the world where they have this like unity of consciousness. But Locke says, right, we can't sort of penetrate substances. We can't know what makes them the way they are. And we also can't know whether because these two concepts are not uh, contradictory or mutually exclusive, we can't know whether God might've super added the power to think to certain material systems. He thinks, right, because there's nothing that rules this out, then to say that that just didn't happen would be to limit God's powers in a sort of arbitrary way. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting, and I was trying to press with my students on Friday, is he takes this view where he's like, look, I'm not committed either way. I have no idea what the stuff in us that thinks is made up, that, you know, like what it's composed of. And then that opens the door to all these materialists who are like, I'm Lockean, right? I think that uh, matter is what thinks. And so there's this huge debate that happens after Locke. Um, one of the most famous ones at the time was between uh, Samuel Clark and Anthony Collins. And they both use Locke as their pawns in their debate. So Clark uses Locke on God to argue for substance dualism. Nancy Collins has this like emergent view of consciousness that he calls Lockean. So he's really, you know, both um, at the sort of precipice of personal identity debates and then really at the precipice of many of the debates that we see in philosophy of mind today too. So um, it's interesting. Like I think most people hear Locke and they think, you know, social contract theory inspired the Declaration of Independence, but there's all this other stuff that's going on that's really interesting as well, plus a lot of bad stuff. Which I also talked to my students about. Yeah, so I mean, just to, obviously, I also want to ask you what you thought of it. But like my initial first, one, my initial impression of it at first was obviously that it was a metaphysical claim that he was making. That he was essentially saying something along the lines of, uh, you know, that you are not your body, right? You are not your yep. brain. Or here's this other thing that makes you, uh, that kind of you know constitutes you. And if we were to put this in another sort of you know in a vessel or a jar or whatever, right? Yeah. You would be in that jar. But, yeah, it's you like know, a functional kind of view, right? Like the makeup of the stuff doesn't necessarily matter. Right. So, yeah. 
Yeah, so that I guess the question is, and again, I would want to know your interpretation too, but is the question then more so about what is it that actually, so it's less so rather, yeah, so it's less so about what is it that makes us as opposed to just to get us to think about what it is that makes up a personal identity. So it's not a claim that he's making, right? It's more so he's getting us to think about what is it that you're actually thinking a person is and are you right, right? And how do you know that you're right about a person or personhood? There's also yeah. that question. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, there's also that question where that's well, is he the same person? Is he still the same man? Right? Which I want, I, I, I thought that was interesting that because uh, to me, it's almost like it's asking essentially the same thing. But if I had to try to see the distinction there, I mean, I was thinking when I think in terms of identity, not just how you think of yourself or your memories of yourself or just that you're this thinking being, but also how you're defined by others as well in terms of their feedback to you yeah. right so the cobbler is, is i mean even if the soul of the prince is inside the cobbler and they're essentially the same person are they this do they have the same well identity? they've swapped personhood so well we don't know where the the person who's the cobbler goes their soul just leaves mm -hmm. who knows where it ends up but that person's now somewhere else and now the person who was in the prince's body is in the cobbler's body. And so when he asks, is it, will we say he's the same man? I think he is rhetorically asking and we're supposed to say no, because we don't see a, the prince anymore. Even though when we talk to him, we realize the prince is kind of in there, right? Um, or at least it's very confusing when you go to pick up your shoes and he's mm -hmm. asking, acting like he has no idea who you are. And so, I mean, I think one way to think about this is like, um, you know, when we talk about fugue states today, right? I think this is kind of trying to approximate something like that. You, oh, you what's, a, what's, a, what's a fugue state? Well, so I'm no psychologist, right? Mm -hmm. But like there are stories of people who, you know, wake up and they're in the state of mind where the, anything that you would use to identify them from the outside, like their vocation, who they're related to, what have you, mm -hmm. they're living a different life. And so mm -hmm. say you were to run into them and, and say like, oh, hey, you know, weren't you my neighbor from blah, blah, blah. And they're doing, they have no idea who you are. They, they're living a whole other life. Their family has nothing to do with them now. Not oftentimes they like then come back and then try to resume their lives. I mean, that's the kind of switch I think he's trying to capture in this thought experiment. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Kathleen Wilkes, but she wrote this really great book called um, Personal Identity Without Thought Experiments. And one of her points was, in the book, right? Um, thought experiments are ubiquitous in personal identity literature, starting with Locke. This is like, right, Derek Parfit, all these people are doing these crazy thought experiments. They're fun, they test our intuitions, that's cool. But her point is look, you know, at real life cases. Things are happening that are weird with persons all the time. One example is a fugue state, or if you look at different kinds of personality disorders. Um, you might rightly say there are different persons being housed in one human body, right? Um, so yeah, so with, the, so with the prince and the cobbler, we really are supposed to think that the person we're calling prince just now is in the body of the cobbler, but not that like any two persons are identical. So he really works to pull apart human being and, and person, right? Like I now, it's funny because my uh, two and a half year old will sometimes, her name is Matilda and we called her, call her Tilda. And every now and then she just says something like, I'm not Tilda, 
I'm a person. And I'm like, they're not mutually exclusive, right? But it's so hard for me to even think now in this sort of like pre-Lockean way about human being and person picking out roughly the same thing. Because uh, I'm just like indoctrinated, I guess, at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting even to think about it in terms of like personality disorders and neurological issues, because if we're thinking about like who a person is, right, you know, I mean, so a controversial disorder comes to mind and dissociative identity disorder, one's called multiple personality disorder. And if you were to kind of talk to or interview some of these folks, they tell you like, I'm actually, it feels like, you know, there are different kind of versions of me or not me or whatever it is, these different people kind of housed in my body. But the question is, right, you know, because and this is why some people disagree with it. The question is, how is something like that possible? because it's still, you know, your brain, it's still your memories, etc. Yeah, but somehow it all sort of splits apart. And I mean, I guess I would wonder, you know, if that's the case, I know this wasn't, I mean, maybe this was an issue back in Locke's time. But I wonder how he would have thought about that. Because technically, I would say this is like the closest that we'll get to that thought experiment being actualized to have yeah dissociative identities in one body. Mm -hmm. Well, he has these other cases too. Um, You know, there's like the day and night man case. And there's, um, you know, a case of like someone's soul leaving while they're sleeping and going and doing other things, right? And then coming back. And there he wants to say, right, you might have the same human being, but you have a different person um, like coming in and out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so the tough thing is, you know, when I push students on this and we first start talking about um, personal identity stuff, either in like a, you know, intro level course or in my modern course now, I organize the whole thing around, Um, The first half is about metaphysical conceptions of persons within the early modern period. And the second half is political conceptions of personhood. Um, And, you know, and when you ask them about personal identity, I mean, at first, they either think like they don't persist from one moment to the next. Right. And then I say things like, well, why do you care if I give you your paper back then? Mm -hmm. In what sense is it yours? Um, (laughs) Or they think, right, um, that they just have very different views about identity than I do. Like, so they, they might think like, um, and I guess along the lines of not persisting from one moment to the next, they, like they think, you know, just a, a change that I would consider sort of slight could mean like breaking altogether with the past, right? And then you kind of push at them and you say things like, well, you know, when you look at a photo from the past, don't you think like, that's me and that, you know, looking at a photo of a family member who looks relevantly similar doesn't capture the same memories because like you don't see that as you and you can kind of get them to to see a little bit more about how we might really persist over time despite great changes but I think this is also a way that we speak colloquially a lot right like oh she's become a new person or (laughs) sometimes we change our names right and I think there's really good reasons to do that and reasons to think I'm not that person anymore. But then I think there's also these deeper metaphysical questions about like whether there really is a break in personhood or whether there is um, something that's more compatible with um, like either change or just growing, right? Um, Because that's the question that's always being asked is like, what's the breaking point, right? What's the change that's so great or so swift that it constitutes a break in personhood versus just this person taking a new path or being going in a new direction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't it a matter of uh, semantics at that point in, in a sense, because uh, I mean, I could definitely look at an older photo of myself and say, yeah, that's me. Right. That, that's me at an earlier point in my past. 
And I could also buy into saying like, well, I had a different personality then, or maybe there's some sort of consistency to the personality with subtle differences between then and now. But I would probably just, you know, word it as, well, that's that's definitely me. But in terms of my personality, I could say maybe I'm different uh, in the sense that I'm a different person now. Uh, also, so the, the distinction, of, right, between this, it's like it's still you as the human being, but the personhood is somehow kind of like I think of Sartre, too, like I am like precedes I am this or I am that like being precedes essence or like yeah. uh, like who I am precedes like my identity. Right. Uh, in yeah. a sense. So but some of it might be like us talking loosely, right? Um, I think that's part of it. And I also wonder, oh, hi. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to say hello? You can come and say hello. Oh, okay. Here, you can wave. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thanks so much. <laughs> uh, so some of it, uh, I think as I was talking loosely, I also think, um, you know, that there's, I mean, even the question of like what makes the same human being over time is pretty complicated, right? Like we're losing, like there's stuff that's changing about us all the time. And you can ask the same questions, like how many organs could I have replaced or how many prosthetics could I have, right? Um, Replacing what were organic parts of my body before you say this is no longer a human being or no longer the same human being. It's just that I think that the questions, both are more difficult when you're talking about what seems to be largely internal personhood. Mm -hmm. And also it seems like there's so much more at stake. So back to that earlier question, right? About like how a lot of this seems internal, but then there's the whole, like how society views us. Um, And I feel like, I mean, one thing about Locke's view is it does seem like it's largely this story about what's going on in you. Like, do you remember doing that? Did you anticipate this? Like that kind of story. And, you know, some of the criticisms I think of it are that it's sort of divorcing us from the social aspect of being a person, right? So much of what makes me think I'm still me might be that like my daughter still greets me as such, right? And that like, if all that were to start breaking down, I might start fracturing in ways. Um, And I guess the other thing I wanted to point out is just like with personhood today, I think Locke's really concerned with persons as moral agents, right? So Mm -hmm. The reason we care about persons more than say like whether a ship is the same over time, right? Is that we think persons are the kinds of agents that we hold morally accountable for their actions. So we wanna be sure as much as we can that we're tracking persons in a good way, that that we're tracking reality, that we're holding the people accountable that actually did the bad thing and rewarding those who did the good thing, right? Um, And so it's always with that kind of in mind, I think that Locke is talking about these things. So part of his view is that, right, we're only going to know so much as finite creatures. Mm -hmm. And this is not very comforting to many people, but Locke thinks right in the end, like God will sort it out. So Mm -hmm. like there are going to be cases in which, right, um, maybe there is a mix up about identity or maybe someone is you know, uh, held accountable for something that they, they didn't do. Hopefully we'll start getting, we'll correct those errors. But when it comes to like the ultimate punishment and reward, right? God, God has a perfect view of uh, personhood, tracking personal identity and so on. And so like, what's interesting going back to this question about, you know, like the religious stuff is like, it's not as if um, 
Locke thinks that it's just like your soul that's judged, right? He thinks the person with their consciousness is judged. So like, right, the point is that say you did X, Y, or Z bad thing. I don't know what this would look like, but God's trying to hold you accountable. And, you know, there's not going to be, if you had done the thing, there's not going to be a way in which God won't be able to make you remember. (laughs) God will. So um, it's interesting because I think, you know, some of us still have views like this. Others, that's completely unsatisfying um, to think about. But I guess I just wanted to emphasize, A, the moral bit, and B, um, the point that I think we're just sort of like trying to get it as right as we can. So, yeah, I mean, there's a way in which I think he's trying to separate himself from those that he's responding to and the views he's rejecting, the soul views, the body views, the human being views. Um, But even though an essay concerning human understanding, right, is supposed to be about trying to show us the limits of what we can know so that we can focus on uh, the stuff we can know and get it right, which is supposed to be figuring out how to live a good life, it's important to remember that like part of that is all wrapped up in personhood, right? And so he is doing metaphysics in this chapter, just like he is in a few others, even though this is largely an epistemological project. Right. At least and that's would, how I read him. Yeah, and would you say then that the kind of essence of his argument is to say something along the lines of, uh, because there's a kind of perpetual personhood, you are responsible for your actions, right? But ultimately, it doesn't really matter if hypothetically, if hypothetically your spirit or whatever, you know, personhood were transposed into another body, you are ultimately going to be held accountable. Yeah. So, I mean, this comes up with debates over the resurrection at the time, right? And this is like, what's interesting is in even like the Prince and the Cobbler thought experiment, there's something going on there that's mirroring what some fears are about resurrection, right? So in his mind, it doesn't matter what body you're resurrected in, whether it be material, spiritual, yours, not yours, it's yours insofar as your consciousness is connected to it. So it wouldn't matter if after the prince swapped into the cobbler's body, he swapped into right some other body, um, because that person, the prince, will be held accountable in the end for the things that the prince did in his yeah. view. Yeah, and I love you know kind of going back. I think it was probably a couple of minutes ago. You said that you know uh, there's a part of you that would have been a little bit, uh, let's say, what's the word? It's not perplexed, but. You know, let's say thrown off and maybe probably terrified if somebody were to kind of, you know, question your personhood or were to ask like, uh, you know, like, wait, you were to tell you something along the lines of like, hey, you're not like you're not who you say you are. Right. But I I like the fact that, you know, there's a kind of individualism in what he says in the thought experiment that could be applied to something like transgender issues where you can say like, yes, right. The world can see you in a different way, but you feel fundamentally that there's an essence to you that they're not acknowledging. So on the one hand, right, it's definitely terrifying for, you know, let's say the culture or the society at large to say, well, you know, you're not who you say you are. Just like, you know, you're not the prince, you're a cobbler, right? right. But then on the other hand, there's such a, there's such a kind of like uh, a kind of admiration of a strength or this, the possession of a strength to be able to say like, no, I actually am who I say I am. You're all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's right. I think um, th- there is a way in which locks often read in as like, there's this thing called an appropriation view. So what you appropriate as yours is, is part of, is what makes it yours or you. Um, and so, I mean, there are some worries that like I could just fail to appropriate the crime I committed. Like, ah, oh, that wasn't me. Um, and that doesn't sound right. But I think there are ways to respond to that worry where like, it's kind of baked in that if your consciousness did, consciousness did something, you're gonna appropriate it in the right way. But yeah, it does lend itself to sort of, in some ways, some more 
um, progressive views on that front. Um, yeah. I'm just curious, have his uh, have any of his thought experiments experiments been applied to transgender issues, like just in general? Not that, I, it... not that I'm aware mm. of. Yeah, but that's a really good question. I just edited um, with Shelley Weinberg this really large volume called The Lockean Mind, which had 59 chapters. I don't recommend mm. editing a volume that large to anyone, even mm -hmm. if you um, are really enthusiastic about the topic. Um, but, it, you know, it it had everything in it from epistemology to Locke's philosophy of religion to, you know, Charles Mills wrote um, a piece on Locke on slavery and Mario Schechtman wrote one on Locke on um, contemporary personal identity. Um, but we didn't have anyone contribute on that front. And in fact, the only other um, area we did not actually get anyone to write on was disability. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is an interesting question to think about. I really like this. Maybe I'll pose this to my students when we return from spring break, whether there's a way in which, you know, um, thinking about persons as Locke does can open us up to different ways of thinking about, you know, like what we appropriate or how our self identity conceptions, right, um, can, can really be communicated to the outside world. I do get nervous a little bit, though. I mean, the, one of the things I'm exploring right now is um, eventually I'll be working on a book called Lock on the um, Metaphysics and Politics of Persons, where I'll be trying to bring in these two areas, right? So most people who work on Lock on Personal Identity don't work on, right, moral political stuff as much, um, but especially political stuff and um, vice versa, right? So what I wanna to try to do is like bring these two worlds together um, and look at how Locke actually deals with gender and race, uh, especially with slavery. And um, so, yeah, I think I'll keep this in the back of my mind. I'm supposed to spend um, part of next summer at the Bodleian Library looking through, uh, basically I wanna look through his traveler's tales and other stuff uh, to see what he's got working in the background in terms of race and gender stuff. Because what's interesting is that um, you know, we have a lot on, on, on Locke that would suggest, you know, uh, one direction, like that Locke should be opposed to slavery. And then as we know, he wasn't at all, right? So he was really, um, as Charles Mills put it, right? Not just a cog in the wheel, but he sort of set the wheel in motion and determined the rate at which the wheel was spinning, right? So he had this, you know, um, really profound effect on, on transatlantic slavery stuff. So, yeah, so this is interesting to think about. Um, I'm gonna yeah. put that in the back burner. And it's also reminiscent of David Hume too, where you would think that this person who was like the pinnacle and the beacon of rationality would be opposing, yeah. would have opposed slavery, but he didn't, right? Not only, did, well, he wasn't silent on that. I mean, he was actively yeah. racist and it's so yeah. shocking to think of. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, so I guess, yeah, the big difference between Locke and Kant and Hume on that front, right, is that Locke doesn't, right, say the things that Hume and Kant say, and yet, right, he has, he was a co-author of the Carolina Constitutions, which gave despotic wow. rule, right, um, of slave owners over slaves. So um, I think that's where, like, the kind of puzzle lies, that there's really no puzzle <laughs> with Hume, right? I mean, he's got these views that are out there. I think Locke on genders is complicated, too. Um, a paper that I wrote for the volume that I just mentioned that I edited was um, on his views on midwifery and childbirth. So he was also a physician um, and wrote quite a lot, actually, on women's health and um, childbirth. And there are moments in these texts, which are known as the midwifery notes, where it looks at first like, 
saying all sorts of things you wouldn't expect for Locke um, that sound incredibly misogynistic, like referring to um, midwives as useless and meddling. Um, you know, and, and actually in the, in the chapter, I end up arguing that really what he's taking issue with um, or like what he's questioning is not the epistemic agency or authority of women in general, but of, of midwives or qua midwife, this is what he's claiming. Um, but then I do, you know, investigate whether we can see some anticipations of this obstetrics midwifery divide that we get in the US, well, and also in the UK um, and other places too. Um, and it, it's interesting because in some of his um, lesser known uh, medical writings, he does refer to like, the kinds of knowledge that um, Native Americans and women can have um, that far surpasses, he thinks, right? What can be learned in the like medical schools, like the best ranked medical schools, you know, in Europe. Um, so it's confusing. I think there's a lot uh, to really dive into there. Uh, was this critique on midwifery, uh, did that come before he suggested that uh, like the, the sort of practices, like, let's say Native Americans do were uh, efficient does that make sense what i'm asking yeah like, these are sort of like contemporary it's, it's dating these is difficult um so a lot of these were um not published there were notebooks um but basically right so uh, his criticisms of midwifery is that midwives meddle too much like so in the sense that like they just insert themselves too much into the process and that can lead to dangerous situations so he thinks that right sort of anticipating, I think, sort of progressive views about childbirth today, he thinks, right, like let the process sort of play out. The, the less that you can intervene, the better. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, the kinds of practices, right, that were at the start of the obstetrics midwifery divide here, he would yeah. definitely be on the midwifery side of things and not the obstetrics side of things, right, which were like very invasive. Um, so yeah, and, and the points I think about um, the call them old women, right? Old women knowing a lot and, um, and Native Americans it is, was really about, uh, I think it was kind of a criticism of this view that like you could get to the underlying cause of things. So in his view, right? The way you treat a patient is they present with symptoms and you treat the symptoms um, and this falls in line, I think, very well with his views about how little we can know about the natural world. Mm -hmm. So, right, um, I mean, in his view, those who come in and see patients and try different um, remedies on them and observe patients and, and deal with them one-on-one -on -one are, uh, have like a much better success rate than those who think that like, oh, if you just know more about anatomy and you just use a better, you know, that you're gonna get there. Um, so it's just a, a, a different kind of approach. Um, and so in that paper, you know, I turn to the, um, this passage that's in this, in this piece called Dayanima as kind of a, you know, support for the idea that he isn't just dismissing women's knowledge sort of wholesale. But I do kind of wonder, I mean, in a footnote, I say like, this could just be completely pejorative, right? Like even like old women and Native Americans know, blah, 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 right? Which mm -hmm. doesn't sound as positive. So I have a lot of work to do on that front and a lot of important work to follow in the footsteps of, which is pretty exciting. 
Yeah, because it's interesting. It sort of seems on the one hand that he is, and then on the other that he isn't an essentialist. So I can't really kind of quite get what he's getting at, right? So it seems like when he talks about personhood and obviously this idea that you're, again, the thought experiment of you being transferred to another body, it does seem like he seems like oh, he believes that there is an essential character, whether it's physical or metaphysical. I mean, would that be so, or is that all? Yeah, so I mean, I think, right, uh, so at the beginning of the identity and diversity chapter, he tells us, and this sounds a lot like Hobbes, right, which people don't usually know, but um, that if you want to talk about the identity conditions of a thing, you need to know what thing you're talking about. So you have to define mm -hmm. what it is you're talking about first. But I guess what's important to keep in mind about that is that he really is a nominalist, right? He thinks that um, rather than thinking that we're dividing up the world, um, like, carving it at its joints that nature sort of pre-carved for us we're creating the kinds right so especially when it comes to the natural world but we're, we're just doing that in general and it's not arbitrary things present themselves to us with clusters of qualities and we, we we see these kinds of patterns repeated over and over again and we you know categorize the world accordingly but um i mean so that's important right so when he says we have to know like what the the term is um, it's not again, like he thinks he's like going in and getting at the real essence of something he thinks, right. That we have to figure out what our sort of agreed upon nominal essence or our general idea is for a thing. And then we can talk about tracking that thing over time. So, I mean, I agree. There's this part of him that sounds like, you know, you're getting at the essence of the thing and that's how you get the answer. But then when you step back and realize, well, that's that's something that we're not doing arbitrarily, but it's not as if he thinks, you know, like I said, we're sort of getting to like the underlying cause of everything and then dividing up the world. It now makes it seem a lot less essentialist, right? So mm -hmm. he's sort of toggling between these two worlds, I feel like. Wow. I love yeah. that. All right. So just for time's sake, I want to move yeah. on to the next thing that we wanted to talk about. So can you tell us a little bit about your work on the philosophical canon and feminist philosophy? Yeah, sure. So yeah, despite all of my work on Locke, um, <laughs> who's one of our sort of greats of the early modern period, I've been working for a number of years now on, you know, expanding the canon and thinking about the historical canon differently within philosophy. So it's obviously worth noting whenever you talk to people who are in other humanities fields, they're like, we did that 50 years ago, right? Or at least 30 years ago. And this is a process that was started um, in that time. So one of the graduates from my a PhD from the philosophy program here at the University of Minnesota, Mary Ellen Waith, years ago, right? Produced a PhD and then wrote a three uh, volume book, um, Women Philosophers, you know, chronicling from the ancient period to maybe like the, to the 20th century, um, the contributions of women philosophers. But um, I mean, the idea for me has been with my co-author, Nancy Kendrick, who is actually a undergraduate professor of mine. So we've transferred into a, a working relationship as co-authors for years now, which has been great. But the point we've tried to make is that, right, if you can change the canon of philosophy so that it's more inclusive and broad and diverse, students in any classroom see authors that look relevantly like themselves. And then they think, wow, look, maybe I could do philosophy too, right? And then that's part of the way that you can change the face of philosophy so that it is more um, diverse. I just saw a recent statistic from NCES that in 2020, I think it was 20% of those who got a PhD uh, identified as women 
And 20%, I think, were from underrepresented racial groups with only 1% identifying as Black. Like this, these numbers have just not moved. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I've written a few articles in like that I'd say are metaphilosophical, right? One arguing for why we need to teach uh, a, a more broad canon in our modern courses with Nancy Kendrick and another about the challenges that doing um, philosophical research like in secondary literature on women philosophers can bring, given that we are uh, coming to this so late in the game as philosophers, we're engaging with other kinds of literature all the time. And one of the things that uh, Kendrick and I have noted is that people really tend to over-personalize women philosophers in their texts, right? So we want to care all about, you know, Anne Conway and how she had headaches all the time and died at a young age or, right, Du Chatelet uh, being Voltaire's lover, right? But um, it can really leave the impression, I think, that there's not a lot of philosophical content there when it couldn't be further from the truth. So that's some of the stuff I've been working on. And yeah, colleagues and I, um, Dwight Lewis and Bennett McNulty here at the University of Minnesota, uh, just started the Minnesota Center for Canon Expansion and Change. So it's going to be uh, the mark of our, like our starting point is a, a pilot summer program where um, we're going to bring in instructors um, from various different areas across the world who um, may not be early modernists, but are charged with teaching modern philosophy uh, on their list of courses, which it's astounding how many people, right? This is like a required course in any department. And often those who are teaching it are not um, specialists, which is totally fine and great. But what you tend to see is that those who aren't specialists, because it is intimidating, right? There's all this secondary literature and these outside debates and so on. They teach the way they were taught. So they teach, right, the seven figures they were taught. And so this is sort of being replicated, right? Like that this is the canon of really modern philosophy. And this is happening, you know, especially at places where there's high teaching loads, right? Like community colleges and so on. And so you're getting whole groups of students who don't know, like, you know, Sorwana existed or Anne Conway existed or Amo existed. Um, and so the idea is that we want to bring in uh, instructors and help them teach philosophy in a different way, uh, modern courses, and um, also talk about uh, pedagogy and positionality, right? How to think of yourself in the classroom as an instructor so that you can reach students where they're at, make it a learning environment that's inclusive, um, design, right? Uh, assessments and so on in ways that are mindful of what we know about best practices um, when it comes to diversity. So yeah, so we're hoping that we'll get a really great cohort to come in this this year. I'm sure we will. And the idea is that they'll do pre-reading. We'll guide them through about five days with half the day being on uh, early modern stuff. We have Julie Walsh, who's an associate professor at Wellesley College coming in as our outside expert and some pedagogy experts. And by the end, we'll craft a syllabus together and then they'll leave as a cohort and uh, we'll be in contact throughout as they roll out their course and change it over semesters. So with the hope that, right, like we teach in the way that we're taught, we tend to see the canon in the way we're taught the canon. And so if we wanna change, change the face of philosophy, this is a good way to do it. So we're pretty excited. We, we need huh. more funding, but we're getting there. I love that. Are you by any chance from, I mean, I'm sure you are. Are you familiar with the works of Brian Van Norden and Dag Herbian's work? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So along those lines. Right. And I mean, also, I mean, I think we're, you know, um, very much right indebted to those who are at Project Box and new narratives and the work that they've done. Um, But our hope is that in having people 
you know, COVID permitting, uh, like in the same space, uh, working through stuff together. And over a summer in Minnesota, where it's like, we could be by the lake, we could be in all these different locations, um, that we can sort of build a camaraderie amongst people, um, you know, and like, just make what seems daunting, less daunting, right? Not because we're experts in like the perfect, you know, modern course, but because together we can come to some kind of conclusions about how to have different modules that will work within any modern course and really have a product that people can feel proud of. Like they were right. They have ownership in it, which I think is very different. It might give people the chance to really roll out a course that's inclusive in the right ways. I find it daunting and this is my area, right? So it's like bringing a new figure into the course is hard. There's so much debate in literature you don't know about and how they all relate. So yeah, I think it's going to be great. Would you say that some of the resistance to some of that has been more a little bit more benign where the idea is like, well, this is just kind of hard and we've been taught this way. We've been taught about these people. We're not so familiar with obviously, you know, yeah. kind of more minority philosophers. So it's like, you know, teaching us like any job, you're just, I mean, you love it, right? But you're trying to get through, right? You need to, yeah. you need to teach the course. You need to, you know, you need tuition, right? And the point is it's hard to create something new, especially from scratch. Yeah, I think some of it is that, yeah, the startup costs are high, right? right. It's like- mm-hmm. Even for me to revamp a course, uh, even if it's in my area, it's like you have to have the time. And, and many right. people are teaching four classes, five classes, right? So um, I think that's part of it. I also think some people tend to think like, well, if I have students who don't leave knowing everything about those seven figures, you know, if they don't know about Barclay as well as, you know, then I've done them a disservice. And in my mind, we need to change the way we think, right? So like, I think if you don't know about Amo, right? And that he's got this totally different perspective um, that he challenges the way we think about the history of philosophy, that right, he's an African philosopher trained in Europe. Um, that's more of a disservice, right? Or if you don't know that Conway is like launching these like full throttled attacks against Spinoza and Hobbes and Descartes and Henry Moore and like, is doing this wild stuff that Leibniz come in, comes in and says like, oh, I agree with that. I also think, right, like monads are a thing. That's problematic. So I think part of it is just also like shifting our values, right? So in my course, you know, we start with um, Descartes, but we spend almost as long on his correspondence with Elizabeth. Like we spend a significant amount of time thinking about how Princess Elizabeth and Descartes are corresponding. Then we move on to Conway and then only after we've done Conway and thought about Locke in relation to Hobbes and Spinoza and also Conway, do we go back to Leibniz, right? So it's like, and, and for brief um, sort of moments. So I've kind of done a little, I've like sort of shifted things. So whereas you might think like you'd focus on Leibniz and then say something small about Conway, I do it the opposite. Um, but I've also had the opportunity, right, to teach two courses just on Conway and write an article. And I still find it daunting. And like, I don't have all the answers, right? So I think that's it. The other thing I guess I'll say is that, um, I mean, you know, we're living in a world where we're still filled with all sorts of bias, right? Um, Male bias in particular. So I once gave a talk in New York when I was still living there. And it was my first talk on Conway. And, you know, someone who, uh, I think taught on Long Island or something came up to me and said, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I won't be here tomorrow. I put all, I put all the women on my syllabus for PC reasons, but I think Conway actually wow. has something philosophical to say. And I was like, mm. 
wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was like 2016. Mm -hmm. So like, there's all, there's also just other issues, but I think when this becomes the norm, then right. There's going to be more consequences for not sort of going with the flow. So the other hope I think with the Minnesota center for um, canon expansion and change is, you know, that like this just, this just becomes the norm. And so, you know, people start thinking, well, I have to teach this way to even be competitive, say on the job market, right? Like if, mm -hmm. even if there's like a selfish reason for it, I think that'd be positive. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I guess it's so interesting that academia, you know, going back to the term I used before beacon, it's sort of the beacon of kind of like progressiveness, right? And it's just, it's just so fascinating to me that this is taking so long and it's so difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it is and it isn't. I was just talking with a friend the other day about, how, I mean, in so many ways, I think um, academia is is just really behind the times, right? Mm. Like it's just a very like as a a machine, like kind of conservative and heavy, and you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think philosophy in particular is is pretty far behind other humanities, and so we have a lot of catching up to do. But I also feel like many people have sort of heard the call, whether it's because they want better representation or they realize like, wow, right. We need to actually appeal to our students and our students don't look like they did 50 years ago. Right. And like, get with it. Um, like, so for me, it's about wrong. It's about writing epistemic wrongs. Right. So in, you know, we've either um, ignored or erased a bunch of contributors to philosophical debate historically, and this is a way of bringing them back in. Um, and I have another visitor here. <laughs> this is Matilda. Hi. 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 And then this is Pippa. She's also Hi. a person. Yeah. Hey. Hello. Okay. Okay. I got They're part of the podcast now. Yes, they <laughs> yeah. are now part of the Ask about Encanto. I, I I watched Encanto, by the way. Encanto! Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. Encanto! But we can't talk about Bruno. We can't. We no. don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno. Thank you. That's my favorite. It's a good movie. You should check it out. I highly recommend it to all the listeners. Bye. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye. 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 And that was honestly almost perfect timing. So as before we wrap up, Alan, final questions for Jessica. Oh, well, actually, sort of a comment. Actually. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, no, I think it's important. Like, for example, back when I was in college in, in Hunter, um, I definitely did have professors who were great at teaching in general and were able to captivate me, engage me. And I think like the endeavor that you're undertaking is is important, especially like te basically teaching teachers how to teach. Right. Yes. How to how to resonate with the students, how to maybe. Yeah. Uh, get with the times right like what's cool is um there were there were times i encountered professors also who i didn't resonate with not because maybe uh maybe they're, like they're great and maybe somebody else they would you know would resonate with yeah. them but i found myself actually going to sources like podcasts actually back in the day to learn mm -hmm. about new things like new levels of thought for instance like alan watts uh mm -hmm. i i never i mean i saw quotes by alan watts like here and there like uh, as I was growing up, maybe, but um, yeah, I never learned about them in uh, philosophy class, mm -hmm. but I did on YouTube. 
And I, I started listening to yeah. his lectures and, and things of that nature. Now, yeah. I know it's sort of like a, in a way, a fringe example, but it is important to, you know, to be exposed to different perspectives, different philosophers, not be sort of dogmatically taught um, the same sort of routine. And, and I think it is important for academia to be progressive again and to sort of, you know, yeah. catch up. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, I think it's great that those resources exist, right. And that you were able to find voices that you didn't find reflected in your like more sort of traditional academic space. But I also feel like it's our responsibility as instructors, right? Um, like, I, I guess, I think sometimes faculty members lose sight of the fact that I, so many students don't even know that we make up our courses, that it's up to us what we teach in the classroom, that it's all, right, driven by the instructor. And so just like, I don't know, I'm, I get this feeling sometimes too. Like, I, you know, I'll read like a book that's called like, the personal identity debate, right? And so if I don't see anyone who is a woman contributing to the debate, like the conclusion I came to years ago was like, well, women just didn't contribute to this debate, right? So like, there's a way in which we can just forget how authoritative we seem and are. And so the memo is like, just very clear, I think like, oh, someone who looks like me, someone who identifies as I identify, just doesn't do this kind of thing. We don't ask these kinds of questions historically, right? Um, we aren't engaged, engaged in debate or taken seriously. Um, and that can have a profound effect on whether you think you can do something. And I think almost anyone I've talked to who's pursued philosophy has had the question, like, is this for me? Can I do this? And you see those questions asked much more consistently amongst those who don't look like the typical philosopher, right? So I think the more we can sort of enforce and reinforce that everyone asks these questions. Everyone always has, right? It can have a really big impact on how the field moves forward because the field is supposed to be thinking about the human condition, right? Not just the condition of a privileged few. And I think that's really important. Yeah, and you would see that some of the reactionary professors would just, you know, in defense would say something along the lines of like, well, it's the canon because these are the people who are at the top tier of philosophy. You know, it's sort of, it's not our fault that, you know, these people were the only ones yeah. with something significant to offer. Yeah, right. And then I guess just, you know, asking like, well, who determined that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is an important thing or like, what's the standard? Because what you see is as you broaden your mind a little bit about what could be philosophical, you see all sorts of things present themselves, right? So I'm, I'm editing with a, a PhD student of mine, Kylie Shahar, um, a modern edition of Catherine Trotter Coburn's works for Hackett. And we're including, um, she was best known as a playwright during her time. That was a way that women were able to contribute to philosophical debate and dialogue, right? And um, if just anything that looks literary or, right, is epistolary or, um, is fictional just can't count, then all sorts of people who had to do different things to contribute just don't count. But as mm -hmm. soon as you sort of move away from the idea that this has to look like a treatise where point A goes to point B to point C, you'll see all sorts of things present themselves as philosophical. Those authors are suddenly philosophers. And, you know, um, there are also people who, like, if you look at Amos' writings or you look at Conway's writings, 
they, they are steeped in tradition, right? And they are doing like really hard metaphysical stuff um, that looks like many other figures, although importantly different, right? In a lot of ways of the period. So it's not like women of the period only thought about like, right? Gender stuff, um, but also those are still philosophical questions. So I think it's this, right? Balancing act of showing people from different identity groups doing the thing that everyone takes to be flat-footedly, obviously philosophical, and also showing that those are not the only things that count as philosophy, right? Now or then, because this is affecting us now, right? So like how many people who do philosophy of race or feminist philosophy are often asked, how is this philosophy, mm -hmm. right? And these things are not different from one another in kind, I don't think. I think they're just like two sides of the same coin, of the same problem, of just kind of diminishing the contributions of some and elevating the contributions of others, which I think is, you know, you're missing out on a lot, I think. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's a great kind of sort of end point, right? So yeah. Alan, Alan, uh, questions for Jessica before we wrap up? Yeah, if, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, where could we find you? <laughs> well, I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I know. We checked it. <laughs> Need to be. I don't know. I think at least the Minnesota Center for Canon Expans Expansion and Change is, is going to have a Twitter account. Yeah, could be um, helpful. Yeah, yeah. I'm on Facebook. Um, I have a website. Um, oh, what's your website? Say. Yeah, the website. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Please. I'll send you that. Um, yeah, and I'm on academia.edu as well. A little bit less so these days, but yeah. And like someday I'll reemerge and go to conferences again. <laughs> I hear Fingers it. crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. So Thank you. This was great. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Take Have a good care. night. Okay, that was cool. I like the I like uh, the kids coming in. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so everyone, thank you so much for watching. If you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and also Seize underscore Podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. Thank you so much for watching.